Jesus said that we should love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. One of the ways we can love him with our mind is to learn more about the world he's created, and then to, with our hands and our strength, implement that knowledge into practice for the benefit of people around the world. So what we're going to do this morning is talk a little bit about research. We'll use some nutritional research as an example of that, and we'll talk about how it works in other countries, and hopefully that will help things fit together. I don't have any ethical conflicts as we do this. I'm not making any money off this, and I don't th- – well, you all had to pay to be here, didn't we? Uh, anyway, um, but hopefully I'll be able to disclose some useful information and maybe some inspiration and at least a little bit of personal perspective on where we're going. Uh, and I'm Phil Fisher. My name tags off, so I won't mess up the microphone, but it sounds like I have anyway. There are no handouts this morning, but if anybody wants a PowerPoint sort of version of the pictures – Um, Then I can give you on a flash drive, if you have a flash drive, I could give you a handout sort of thing, but I only brought one along of what the slides are, but I'm happy, um, and the email address was up there to give information. Um, So hopefully today we'll be able to have some information and some ideas that will be useful to each of us as we head off into different directions. And so maybe we might find that God might have us use our minds to learn new things that will be useful as we implement them for the good of other people around the world, and maybe clinical research will even become part of our own careers as we do things. But I'm a pediatrician, and I like kids, so we start with a story. The story is, once upon a time, I was a little boy, and I was trying to grow up into the medical field, and I was on call one evening hanging around with a urologist. Now, that's an unlikely place to expect wisdom and inspiration, Uh, but as I was talking to this urologist, Uh, He told me something that was interesting. He said, if you take care of patients, you can help a lot of individuals. And I said, yes, I want to do that. I want to help people, so I'll take care of patients. But the urologist kept talking, and he said, by teaching, you can help lots of people for a whole generation and beyond. And I said, teaching, that's even better. I want to help lots of people for generations. And then he said, but if you do research, You can help everybody, all of humanity, for many generations. So maybe the answer is we should do all of it. Take care of patients, teach people to take care of patients, and learn new things along the way. So we'll try to share a little bit of a global perspective about how research fits into all that. And I realized that years after I'd been in Africa, evacuated back to this country, then God made us make the most difficult decision of our lives when he told us we should stay in America instead of going back to Africa to work full time. And I ended up at a place called the Mayo Clinic, And one of the founding brothers of the Mayo Clinic said that the mission of that clinic is to heal the sick and advance the science. And maybe that's the same to some degree for all of us, no matter where in the world we're doing our medical work. We can help individual patients, but maybe we can also advance science to help others. God has set things up so far for our lives that we don't have full knowledge. He does, but we're not omniscient. And as we grow to know him better, we can learn more about him and the world that he's created for us, and we can use that knowledge by his power um, to be able to impact other people. So I've realized along the way, partly from God and partly from a urologist one night, that research is actually important and worthwhile. And the research I'm talking about does not necessarily mean pipettes and test tubes in a lab, but clinical research that's taking place in the context of clinical work. Research is important, and it can be worthwhile. So I felt as I was finishing my training like a little boy looking to the heavens, praying for help, and saying, what should I do? So I went to a mentor, Dick, Dick O'Brien, And I said, Dick, I want to do research. What should I study? I'm going to Africa. I want to do research. And he said, I don't know. 
I don't know what the questions are. I thought, what kind of help is that? You're supposed to be my mentor. But then I realized, in fact, that was the wisest answer I could have gotten because good research often comes out of clinical questions. Good research often springs from situations that come up in our daily life and our daily practice. So I left my residency, studied a little bit of French and tropical medicine in Europe, and ended up in this place in the northeast corner of what was then called Sayre, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That is a hospital in these little shiny roofed buildings there in the middle of all that. Wandered around the pediatric ward seeing patients and wandered around the maternity ward seeing newborn babies and their mothers. And one morning the nurse said to me, the newborn had a fever during the night, but we gave chloroquine and the baby's fine now. In those days, chloroquine was appropriate for treatment for malaria because there wasn't much resistance. But I taught them, and I realized that congenital malaria is rare because you have to be bitten by the mosquito before it has 10 days to go through the liver and get out. And I quoted somebody with Sir for a first name, so he must have been smart. And I said, in indigenous populations, the incidence of congenital malaria is exceedingly low. Teaching. It was such a nice teaching time. Then a couple days later, I was still making rounds, seeing more babies, and the nurse said, this newborn had a fever during the night, and the malaria smear was positive. So we gave chloroquine, and the baby's fine now. I thought it was time for another teaching moment, that we did not have a divinely inspired lab, and that false positive laboratory results were possible, and that perhaps it wasn't really malaria, but it was an abnormal lab result because the lab had a problem. And the nurses kept trying to show me that kids could get better if they would just treat them for malaria. And I realized I needed to play kindergartner again and stop and look and listen. And as I did, I realized, wow, 12% of the babies being born in that hospital at that time had malaria when they were born. They had parasites in their bloodstream. Some of them died because of their malaria. Some of them had fevers because of their malaria. And as it relates to today's context in nutrition, um, some of them actually had, because of their mother's malaria, had low birth weight with increased risks of death because of that. So in fact, Malaria in pregnancy can cause newborns to be born with malaria. It's already had an impact on their growth and nutrition and health, and that makes them more likely to die as they go through life. I learned something because I listened to the nurses and asked a few questions, and we let our patients tell us things just by paying attention to them. So that was several years ago. Papers were written in medical journals, and since then we realized that over Africa and malaria endemic areas, about 7% in general, about 7% of newborns are born with malaria in their blood, with parasites in their blood. Some of them are sick, a few of them are dying, and since then in the last couple decades, there's been an increased focus on malaria in pregnancy, and lots of people have been helped from it from what turned into a nursing student's clinical research project during nursing school to find out that congenital malaria could happen. There's since, um, over the last couple decades, been lots more information. So it showed me that, in fact, good research, as Dick O'Brien had tried to tell me, doesn't necessarily come from sitting at a desk thinking, what can I study? But it comes from living around people and seeing things that don't make sense and trying to learn new things. So sometimes clinical research and good research even can come out of daily life and clinical situations. But at the same time, I realize there's more to research than just research and that relationships are actually important and relationships can matter. We had a visiting woman named Meg come to visit with us and she came and she was talking to me. She just finished college, wanted to see the world, spent six months with us in Congo. Um, and we said, um, there are a lot of problems around here, and one of them is that almost every baby, every child I see in the hospital is anemic. 
we weren't quite sure why so many children were anemic. So Meg wandered through the community and surveyed people, did a few blood tests, and we found out that two-thirds of the children in the community that seemed to be healthy were iron deficient. That's bad. It's bad for their development. It's bad for their intellectual learning. It's bad for their general health. We found out that anemia was incredibly common in the community and that most of it was because of iron deficiency. That has specific implications for what's going to go on in terms of taking care of patients to prevent them from being sick with other things and in the hospital. So how does that relate to relationships mattering? I told you that I asked somebody named Dick O'Brien what he could do to help me with research, and he said he didn't know the questions, and Meg was his daughter. Um, years later, who came overseas and lived with us. While she was there, um, she actually became a Christian. Uh, she went on to become a pastor. Um, and exciting things can happen because there's more to research than just research, and relationships are important. I don't know if I agree with the quote that's up here, uh, but somebody once said, and I thought of this as five of my children have now grown, all five of them, grown and headed off to college and beyond. Uh, but somebody once said that the only thing that really matters about what college you choose to go to is the friends that you'll make, the networking and the connectedness. So as I was driving in this morning and I saw a Calvin College bus pulling up, anybody from Calvin here? Yeah, nice. We're in the bus this morning coming in. And then I saw a Hope College van doing something. Indiana Wesleyan came all the way from across the freeway, it looks like. And there was another. I'm not sure that the only thing that matters is the friends you make in college. I think education might matter. But in fact, in college and in research, relationships and networking matter. The people we meet now, the people we meet at this conference are the people that we're going to perhaps be in touch with and collaborate with in the future. Uh, so networking is important and relationships are important even in research. Research is not a solo sort of a thing going on in a lab all the time, but it involves networking and people and connectedness. But none of us can do it all ourselves. Part of the reason we need that networking and connectedness is because wise researchers will seek and obtain help. Nobody can do it all on their own. Figuring out about anemia in the community took Meg to do some work. Figuring out about congenital malaria being common took a nursing student to do some work. Um, it takes help. Um, so there's another urologist. I don't know why it is that urologists have been so important in my life. Uh, maybe it's a sign of future health problems I'll have or something. Uh, but I was talking to another urologist. Actually, he wrote to me. Uh, after we'd been in Congo for a while, and I realized in retrospect I was trying to save the world, hmm, I thought that was God's job. But somehow I think I had forgotten that somewhere along the line. I was working really hard, trying to do everything, trying to take care of our nurse training school, trying to take care of all the patients, and I was feeling pretty glorious as the only pediatrician for a million and a half kids. And I, 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 I doesn't work very well because somehow I was getting myself too busy and I didn't realize that I needed more help. So I got sick. I got a few illnesses. Um, Bob and Kabanga were around then um, as we were in um, Congo. I was sick for about nine months. And the urologist wrote to me from California and said, delegate or die. And this was not just some theoretical sort of a thing. I was kind of sick. Uh, my wife actually planned what she would do with the life insurance money at one point. Uh, so sometimes we have to realize that we can't do it all ourselves. Of course, if somebody said, Phil, can you do it all yourself? I would have said, no, it takes a whole team. We're part of the body. We all work together. But in real life daily work, as I look back, I realized I was trying to do too much myself. I needed to learn not so much to downward delegate, like the urologist said, delegate or die, but really collaborate and conquer. That would sound better. Um, but working together, networking, teamworking, we need to ask for help. 
How do we get people to help with research? If we have a question that needs to be answered, we can find people that are doing similar sorts of things. Probably somebody else in the world has asked a similar question. Probably we can find out people interested in our topic by this clever invention called the Internet. Um, probably we can find out who else cares about our questions. And then we can contact them and ask for specific help. Say, I'm working with this. You look like you're the one that could help with this. Could you help me know what to do? And then we can mobilize a team and get things together. I sometimes feel like the kids that were waiting outside our clinic with their empty cups wanting something to eat or drink, uh, but realizing that sometimes it's okay to beg for help and say, I don't know what to do. I need help. Um, and getting a team together to help can do it. Uh, so after I was back in the States and a particular research issue had come up, I realized that really to answer one of the questions we had, we would need to do some genetic testing on blood samples of kids from Africa, and that would help us figure out a particular situation. And so I checked around the Internet, made a telephone call. This is in the days when you had to pay for phone calls before there were cell phones. Uh, but I called this guy at Stanford and said, hi, I'm nobody. I didn't quite say that. Uh, but I said, we don't know each other, but I'm trying to figure out this situation of why these kids in Nigeria are such and such. And as I look things through the literature, I realize that you've done similar tests. And I wonder if there's any way that I could figure out how I could get that particular genetic test done. And he said, yes. I'm the one. Uh, and for free, he did all these genetic tests on these samples from Nigeria, and we figured out something. So we pursued this a little bit. We were looking at absorption of calcium from the intestines, and it's hard to do that without high-tech things, except somebody at Baylor had been doing it with a low-cost way to do the fractional absorption of calcium when you give them some special calcium to eat with their porridge um, to see what happens. So I called the guy at Baylor and said, you know, I don't really know you, but I'm trying to figure out how well kids in Nigeria absorb calcium, and I understand you've done some studies. I wonder if there's any way we could learn how to do that there. And he said, yeah, can I go visit? I'll pay my own way. These are people the way God works through relationships, um, who wanted to be involved. They heard a specific question that was involved with what they were doing. They wanted to get involved. They volunteered, and we've had good collaboration since. So if we're counting principles, principle number four of doing research overseas, nutritional or otherwise, is wise researchers seek and obtain help. We can't do it on our own. We shouldn't feel squeamish about asking for help. We can get help. Things can happen. So as we look toward the future of what we can do, there are lots of things we could be working on, lots of directions to go. We might need to focus and get our eyes pointed in the same direction. And we realize that there are huge gaps. There are grand canyons of knowledge we need to get across. And it's going to take time to do all this. So the fifth principle is perhaps the most painful for me to tell you about. And that's that a long-term perspective makes it possible to enjoy failure along the way. How many of you came to learn how to enjoy failure? Um, what a great time we can have talking about that. But James said something about that. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials and tribulations. Even in doing research, as we fail, if we have a long-term perspective, we might be able to enjoy it. It's not going to be like this guy I saw in Bangladesh where he could blow on his flute and the cobra would just stand up straight. Okay, done. Show's over. Um, we're not going to train snakes to do magical sorts of things quickly in doing research. But research takes time. So I think back to my first ever publication. I was an undergrad at the time working in a research lab with animals. Uh, and the leader of the lab, Fred, came to me one day. And he had this little paragraph thing, which I learned was called an abstract. Um, and he showed me this abstract. And he said, what do you think about this? 
And I read through it, and it was so cool. The work I had been working on was all there, introduction, methods, results, conclusions, all written up as an abstract to go off and be published. And I looked through this thing, and it was really cool. And he had a list of all these authors at the top of it. And I thought, those are my friends. These are the people I'm working with. But I didn't recognize one of the names. So I said, this looks great, but who's P. Foster? And he said, oh, what's your name? And I said, Fisher. Uh, and he said, I'm sorry, Paul. Uh, so the guy didn't know I was Phil, and he didn't know I was Fisher, but that was my first publication. Uh, we shouldn't let it go to our heads. Uh, Sometimes we have to keep smiling, look around the corner, and see whatever's next. I, I know that humility is not one of my strong points, and I realized this when a, a book was published recently in Congo. It was a French thing. Uh, a manual for healthcare workers in rural areas into the third edition. And I had proofread it all, and it was fine until I saw the book and the front cover, two things. Pink was not my favorite color, but somehow the cover of the book was pink, and it was written by Phil Filcher. There was an extra L in my last name. Uh, so sometimes God will do funny things to keep us humble. I was looking at a website last night of a book I got to be involved with that Dave wrote it chapter in, um, but by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And if you look on the American Academy of Pediatrics website, it lists one of the editors as Phil Risher uh, with an R. Anyway, we can keep looking forward. We're not in this for ourselves. We can keep learning. So as for us working in Africa, I saw there were lots of kids dying from a particular problem, measles at the time. And I thought, this is something people should know about. We don't hear about measles in the rest of the world. So I asked Phil Wood, a colleague and mentor to me there. I said, what can we do with this? Um, should we write something up about this and get it published. He said, yeah, try the Belgian Journal. They'll publish anything. So I sent it off to them, and they rejected this paper. Uh, so then I had to translate it back into English. Well, that was a strange thing to do. Uh, anyway, I translated this back. I sent it off to an American pediatric journal that more people have heard of than had heard of the Belgian thing. And the American place, um, after I submitted it to them, they accepted it, they published it, and they even published the letter I wrote along with it telling them how important the topic was. If we keep a long-term perspective, we can enjoy a little failure along the way. We can look, keep looking ahead. So as we were working in Congo, Zaire, I realized that there were some problems of newborns, and I wondered if it related to feeding patterns in the early days of life. Um, we in our setting had cute little bassinets for babies to sleep in. But babies in bassinets didn't seem to feed as much as babies that were with their mother in the same bed, which was their more natural habit. So we were studying co-sleeping to see if co-sleeping might actually be healthy or not. So I wanted to test co-sleeping and see what it would do. So I wrote to a funding organization that was interested in international child health and nutrition. And I thought, this is perfect. Um, so I wrote them an application, asked for some money. We didn't need very much, just a few thousand dollars. And they turned down the application. They said they weren't interested. So I went to another funding source, my wife, and I said, Julie, I think that maybe we should spend some of our own money to do this. And she said, Phil, I think we should get a puppy. <laughs> and I said, I said, Julie, I'm thinking we should spend some of our own money to help African babies that aren't well-nourished. And she said, Phil, I think we should buy dog food for the new puppy we should get. Um, so what happened with that? We spent a few thousand dollars to do the research. Uh, we got a dog, and the dog was affectionately named Research. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and we got some research done, um, and we enjoyed the puppy, and it grew up to be a wild dog. Anyway, we enjoyed the dog. Uh, and 
Papers came out of that. We learned new things that said actually co-sleeping could be useful, and a couple of different journals published that. So a few years later, I wanted some more grant money to do something bigger related to calcium nutrition research. Um, so I wrote to that same funding organization and asked them if we could have some funding. And they said, yes, if you get somebody that knows more about the topic than you do. Uh, that was really a good answer. It didn't feel very good at the time, but in fact it worked, and it was part of that network and teamwork which put me in touch with a great collaborator from South Africa, uh, and it worked out very well. So after these failures and insults along the way, um, it was a few years later, they invited me to join the board of this funding organization. Long-term perspectives can keep us going through some failures and things might work out. So I feel a little bit like my son. This is when he was a bit younger. Joining hands in teamwork, accepting whatever help we can get. But I don't really feel much like my son in this picture. I feel like Bapu, this other kid, who is so excited about research, he's about to wet his pants. Uh, <laughs> So I told you about Meg, Dick's daughter, and Meg came to work with us, and we figured out this anemia stuff. We wrote it up for a medical journal, so we sent it off. And the editor of the journal wrote back a personal note to me and said, to protect your scientific integrity and reputation, we will not put this paper into print. <laughs> oh, you didn't like my paper, huh? I thought it was a pretty good paper. And he said that he didn't think my reputation could tolerate being associated with such garbage, um, so he refused to publish the thing. Wow, I thought that funding thing about needing somebody smarter was tough. Interestingly, 12 years later, that same editor, I think he'd forgotten about the garbage I had sent him earlier, and he wrote to me after I was at the Mayo Clinic, and he said, we'd like you to be on, your, on our editorial board. You don't have to do anything. We just want to list your name inside the cover of our journal. Sometimes a long-term perspective can keep us laughing and smiling even as we fail and do stupid things because I showed this a couple of days ago for some of you. The way we get to research results is not by taking the escalator. We've got to walk up. We don't get fit by taking the escalator. We don't get research results quickly. Sometimes we have to step up each step on ourselves to get up to the fitness, kind of like raising children's. That's the little guy in the picture with a guy that was about to wet his pants. Um, he's three inches taller than me now, working in Congo himself. Uh, but just like the five children Julie and I have raised, research takes time. We're in it as pediatricians are in the profession for long-term growth, long-term learning over time to make a difference. So a long-term perspective does make it possible to enjoy some failure around the way, uh, along the way. So as my friend Samarita says, so what's next? What are you going to do about it? Is there more? And in fact, there's always more to learn. When we find results from a research study, it just opens the pantry door, as it were, to lots more questions that can be asked. A uh, missionary nurse practitioner working in Cambodia for the last 10 years has been telling me that there's a problem in Cambodia because she thinks kids have beriberi. And in fact, in Cambodia, lots of kids are dying. 6% of children born healthy die before their school age. Um, infant mortality of 600, or, yeah, of, excuse me, of 60. So 6% of kids, may not sorry, childhood mortality of 60. 6% of babies not making it to five years of age. Um, Cambodia's got lots of rice. Rice is growing. There's food available. What's going on nutritionally? So Debbie, the nurse practitioner, looked around the, con the province where she lives, uh, and over three years she went to survey families and with some other colleagues, um, did a survey of why babies were dying. 
looking at about 51 out of 1,000 kids that had been born, 51 had died. She went back after the tragedies had happened and found out that three-fourths of those babies had had fast breathing before they died. Half of them had funny voices where their voices got unusually hoarse. And if they put in retrospective diagnostic criteria, they could say that nearly half of them probably had beriberi, thiamine, vitamin B1 deficiency. So that's probably a problem. So Debbie would see kids. She would check them out, check their heart rate, check their respiratory rate, um, see kids that were there. The nurse, when they thought they had beriberi, could give them a shot of thiamine into the leg. And then these kids in heart failure from wet beriberi, a few hours later would wake up and look around and start eating and be healthy again. Sounds like thiamine deficiency. Um, so we looked to see what was going on, and we had lots of questions. So we actually sent a medical student to Cambodia a year ago, um, and she looked at 27 sick babies that seemed to have beriberi and got some age and gender-matched controls, and we did thiamine levels on them. Testing thiamine levels is very difficult. There aren't many labs that can do it, certainly none in Cambodia. But we checked thiamine levels, and all the babies were thiamine deficient, whether they were sick with beriberi or they were healthy and just coming in for a checkup, which raises the question, well, is this really beriberi, or do these kids have something else and they just all happen to have thiamine levels? Or maybe some of them the thiamine levels dropping because they're sick. So now we've got another medical student in a different part of Cambodia right now doing some further other studies to try to figure this out. Research gives us lots of answers, but leads to lots to learn. And as we learn, it makes a difference. We think we have one answer, and we realize there are multiple pieces. This is a baby that came to the clinic to get help for presumed beriberi. The family chose to come get regular medical care because they thought the child was sick with fast breathing. The mother brought her scissors along because of local custom there, realizing that you might meet evil spirits along the way, and you need a weapon to protect your child on the way to the clinic. But she realized that maybe there were some spirits that wouldn't respond to scissors, so she put a little ash cross on the baby's forehead to deal with the other gods or spirits that might be a problem. So coming for a thiamine shot with scissors to ward off the spirits, and a little mark on the forehead to appease some other spiritual beings or something, she was covering all of it. We have a lot to do. As we learn a little bit about thiamine deficiency, we open up all these other cultural issues about medical care and spiritual needs and darkness in the world and what we can do. And it's the reminder to me that there is indeed always a lot more to learn. So how do we put it all together? I'll tell you a story that happened um, in Nigeria and is still happening related to this, um, and how does this all put research together. When I was a resident in pediatrics, there was a medical student at the place where I was named Tom, and I headed off to Congo, Tom headed off to Nigeria, and he was working in Nigeria. When he was in Nigeria, he would see mothers, he would see kids, he would talk to them, and he would get histories. And he was working in central Nigeria in a place called Jos in Plateau State that makes the news for other exciting things these days. And he was at the Jos University Teaching Hospital working there. And as he was working there, he realized that there were lots of kids with crooked legs. So after I had settled back, well, was settling back into the States um, after time in Congo, uh, Tom wrote from Nigeria and said, Phil, there are lots of kids with crooked legs around here. And indeed, some of his kids had bow legs, crooked going out. Some of them had knock knees. And some of them had what we call windswept deformity with legs going crooked each way. And he looked at these kids, and their wrists and their ankles were enlarged. Some of them had little bumps along their chest, beading or purling, or what the Catholics call rachitic rosary, with the little bumps along the chest. And as Tom got x-rays, he would see that they had a wide space of a growth plate. It was a fuzzy or frayed growth plate, and it was often cupped there. So cupping and fraying and widening of the growth plate, Tom said, these kids have rickets. 
But how come so many people have rickets? Rickets is known with vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D comes from the sunshine. So Tom said, why do these kids have vitamin D deficiency? Why do they have rickets? Because they're all playing in the sunshine. So we did some vitamin D testing. This is what we had to get the money from where they said we needed somebody smarter to help us out to do this project. Um, so we did some vitamin D testing, and it was all normal. This wasn't vitamin D deficiency. And yet these kids were only eating less than a fourth. Normal calcium intake should be 800 milligrams per day in a child. These kids were getting less than a fourth of the amount of calcium. Could it be calcium deficiency in the diets that's causing trouble? Around that time, Lou Barnes wrote a letter to the editor of the Journal of Pediatrics, and he wrote this sole author letter, and he started it with the word we. He can do that because for four decades, 40 years, he had written the nutrition chapter of the major pediatric textbook, Nelson's Pediatrics. Um, so he said, we believe that calcium deficiency is not responsible for rickets in human beings. All right, that's what the books have said for 40, 40 years. That's what he says in a letter, calcium deficiency can't do it. Around that time, a guy named Jerry, a nutritional biochemist from uh, Cornell in New York, um, he went to, to Bangladesh, and then he wrote to me after he got back, and he said, Phil, there are lots of kids with crooked legs around here. Uh, and indeed, there were. So I went to Bangladesh to check it out. I tried to join the Greybeard Society, chatted with a few people that were older and wiser than me in Bangladesh. And we looked at kids, and sure enough, there were kids with knock knees. Um, there were kids with bow legs. There were kids with crooked legs, and they seemed to have rickets. Knees turning in with crooked legs, knees turning out with crooked legs. Lots of kids in Bangladesh had rickets. And fascinatingly, we just did a handful of kids. Um, none of them had, or all of them had pretty much normal vitamin D levels. They didn't have kidney disease or anything else that should cause rickets. So what's going on? And they weren't eating enough calcium in Bangladesh. As we look over the last couple decades, we can see countries in green where there have been scientific reports about widespread rickets. Rickets is a problem. Many of these are between the two tropics, so tropical areas where there's lots of sunshine. Oh, wow, we're thinking 1040 window this week. We could draw other lines and say that rickets is a 1040 window problem almost. But there's lots of nutritional rickets scattered around the world. So what's going on with that? So Tom figured, let me figure this out. So he took 123 kids with rickets, and he gave a third of them vitamin D, and he gave a third of them calcium, and he gave a third of them calcium and vitamin D to see what happened. And with time... They got better from crooked legs that over time and getting calcium, their legs straightened out and they got better. The kids that got calcium got better. The kids that got just vitamin D didn't get better. It looked like maybe this was really calcium deficiency rickets. So there was an editorial published in that same journal that had the Lou Barnes thing, and it said, when you see rickets, consider calcium deficiency. Now, isn't that interesting? A family practice physician working in Nigeria at a teaching hospital under the offices of a Christian organization, um, he was there working. He figured out something by asking questions and trying different treatments. His results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then he has journal editors and other places writing that you should think about calcium deficiency, change what's been in generations of textbooks. So I was walking around in 2001, a pediatric meeting, and I saw this older guy, 91 years old, toddling along on his cane with his wife, Lou Barnes, the guy that did the wee letter after a generation of writing textbook things. I said, Dr. Barnes, what do you think now? Can calcium deficiency cause rickets? He said, there's no doubt that it can. Indeed it can. Clinical research in resource-limited areas can lead to new knowledge, which can help a lot of people, and it can change science and what we know. So what's causing all this nutritional rickets? 
Some kids have vitamin D deficiency causing rickets, that's true. We found that some kids can have calcium deficiency causing rickets, but along that spectrum, some have a little calcium deficiency, a little vitamin D deficiency, and maybe some other things going on. So we looked, this is the smart guy from South Africa, this is a Nigerian pediatrician, that's Tom. We checked out the markets and the foods and we wondered what kids were eating. We looked at that calcium absorption study that the guy from Baylor helped with, and we found out the kids are absorbing calcium adequately if they have enough. And we looked at breast milk. Mothers of kids with rickets don't have as much calcium in their breast milk. Wow, calcium-poor breast milk. That's not a big factor, but it's at least a significant piece of the puzzle maybe going on. Do you like that kid? Cute kid, huh? What makes that child so cute? The eyes. What makes the eyes so cute? Big and mascara. This child has eyeliner, black shadow, painted around the eyes. So calcium is a divalent cation, um, and so is lead. And the eyeliner used in Nigeria and many other parts of the world is lead, lead-containing. We wondered if lead toxicity might be an issue. We found that 70% of kids in that part of Nigeria were lead toxic. Wow, there's an issue. Lead toxicity was associated with use of their eye cosmetics and with recycling old truck batteries in the dirt in their yards. But lead toxicity was not associated with rickets. So here we're trying to figure out rickets. We learned something about lead toxicity, but it didn't relate to rickets, but it's still useful to people. What about genetics? We wondered, well, we look at kids with rickets, and a bunch of them have somebody else in their family with rickets. Uh, and there are other families that don't seem to have much rickets. So we got the guy at Stanford to do those genetic tests, and we found out that, indeed, there are certain alleles that relate to osteoporosis in older women in America, and those same alleles also relate to who's at the biggest risk of getting rickets in Nigeria. So we learned something about the genetics. We discovered a new mutation along the way, and we found out how people respond to vitamin D, and whether you're normal you can respond well to vitamin D, or if you're carrying one part of the gene, or if you're homozygous with both, the genetic factors are relevant. So there are a bunch of pieces between calcium and vitamin D deficiency and food intake and the breast milk you've gotten and your genetics um, and whether you're using eyeliner. Lots of different things could be tested. And along the way, the bottom line conclusion was kids still need calcium and they still need vitamin D. Children still need milk and they still need sunshine. So then we asked the question, well, so what are we going to do about it? Back to Samarita with her hands. So what's next? What are you going to do about it? Um, is it possible to mobilize forces to actually do something about the millions of kids with rickets? So this was a headline after a meeting we had in Nigeria. In one of the papers in the Capitol, it says, First Lady Fights Rickets Among Children. The president's wife got involved in trying to overcome rickets. In Bangladesh, after a meeting there, the headline weekend paper I just said that to sound impressive. The weekend Sunday paper didn't mean anything in Bangladesh because Sunday's a normal day. But anyway, the Sunday paper said, deadly bone diseases threaten Bangladesh. That ranked right up there with protest wife beating that day. Uh, so publicity to try to get people to do something about this. Does it make a difference? It can. Learning new material applying it to individual patients, applying it to populations of patients, even as research continues into preventive efforts, and then mobilizing and advocating to try to make a difference for lots of people. So will it make a difference? It can make a difference if we're combining our research into translational ways that get it into the community. One of the nurses working at the Mission Hospital in Bangladesh um, 
was very kind, and we sent a couple of our medical students from Mayo to go spend some time in Bangladesh. And we wanted to get some more blood samples to do another genetic thing, so they went out into the village. And I felt a little bit guilty that they had to take their time from the busy medical center, the mission hospital staff, to take these two medical students out to the village to get blood samples. So I was talking to the nurse later on when I was in Bangladesh later, and I said, hey, thanks. Thanks for taking Dave and Leslie out to the village. Um, it's kind of a big deal, and I really appreciate the time because it was helpful for research, and it was great for their experience, and now they're going to go back and work in that part of the world long term. And she said, oh, no, we were happy to do that. The village where we took them, we had no contact with them before. There were no churches in that village, and there were no Christians in that village. But once they came to the hospital and a couple of their kids with rickets actually got better, um, then they started to have more contact with us. So we sent our follow-up team out to check on how their rickets was doing. There happened to be an evangelist and a discipler in that follow-up physical therapy team going out there. Um, she says, this is great that we could take the medical students out there. Because of rickets now and because of the research and what we're doing and what's happening, now whole new villages have been open to the gospel. Well, that was kind of cool, I thought. I said, you can take medical students to the village anytime. So once upon a time, we ask questions, we get answers. Is there going to be a happy ending to this story about doing research about nutrition and other things in other countries? I think so, because it's not really just about research. It's not about the failures along the way. It's not about the dark clouds and the hassles and the difficulties. But there's a light shining. And sometimes that light can shine through, and the light shines through as God shines his light, even as we're doing research involved with people around the world. So we have a few minutes for questions or comments or rebuttals or anybody else that wants to go wander around Bangladesh in a village or something. Questions or comments? Yes. So... Somehow I'm curious enough that I started doing research when I was an undergrad. Um, and then when I didn't get into medical school, the first year I applied, I did research full-time that year. So that was the Fred guy that didn't know my first name or my last name. Um, so I got to work with him. So I got a little flavor of research there. Um, and then in my residency, I was involved in some other sorts of research sorts of things. So when I got to Africa, I was ready to roll. I, I, had, I wanted to do research, but I didn't know what to ask. So for me, it just happened by seeing things I didn't know the answers to. I asked questions like the malaria thing initially and then other things that came up later. Um, so for me, it was just trying to answer questions. And that's what research is, searching for answers to questions. So for me, it was kind of a curiosity and a habit of wanting to learn things coupled with a fertile field of unanswered questions all around me and then just being able to focus and answer some. Um, the other way to do research is to say, oh, I want to do research. So you find somebody doing a lot and you say, can I hang around you and work in your lab and squish things into your test tubes and do research that way? Um, for me as a generalist, I like the broader way of I've got questions, let's figure out answers. So there are lots of ways to get into it. I think we have five minutes left still. No other questions, comments, or stories to tell? Yeah. Uh, so one of the projects is the thiamine thing in Cambodia. I'll admit that I was a little bit skeptical. Do all these kids really have beriberi? And I went there and I thought, these kids have beriberi? I'd never seen beriberi before. Um, so I had a lot to learn about it. But these kids had a particular pattern that fit exactly with what beriberi looks like. But is all of it beriberi? We don't know. So we've got some beriberi things going in Cambodia. Uh, we've got some finishing up stuff from some of the calcium-related stuff in Nigeria. And now I'm getting into some other things with tired teenagers in Minnesota. But, so the different projects scattered around the world. 
Um, physical therapists are always needed in lots of places. Um, so there are lots of things physical therapists can do. Um, one of the exciting things about child health these days is that more kids are surviving newborn, surviving the birth process. But that leaves lots of kids with neurodevelopmental challenges afterwards. So there's been a huge increase in the last 10 years in the need for physical therapy sorts of things. So, yes. Lots of needs for physical therapists to do lots of things. The frustration I face when I visit places like Cambodia is they bring me patients that have been struggling for a long time, and mostly they don't need a pediatrician. They need physical therapy because they have chronic neurodevelopmental issues. So, yeah, huge needs. Angela, one of my heroes, yes. So I showed you the picture. She asked why they have so much beriberi in Cambodia. It probably relates to the rice fields and how the rice is milled. There was a study done eight years ago, nine years ago in Laos, and it looked like people mill their rice differently, so it takes the vitamin B off of the rice husks, and that gets discarded or given to the pigs. Um, and then the people just eat the clean white rice that's polished and doesn't have the vitamin B left with it. So that's the official answer, but it's not clear because the kids with and without beriberi in Cambodia, they don't necessarily eat differently. And now they're all thiamine deficient, it looks like, at least in that province. So I don't exactly know. So the official medical answer is it's related to rice husking and how they do that. But the real answer is, ask me again in two years, uh, maybe we'll figure something out. Because it seems to be Southeast Asia that has a lot of beriberi, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Um, and there's not a lot, in some Thailand maybe, um, but there's not a lot of other beriberi in the world. Um, so at least it's not being recognized. So maybe rice. Do you know how people fix your rice in Pakistan? It's white, so. so maybe they're de-husking it there too. So yeah. So those are the questions we haven't figured out. I mean, this is 15 years on the calcium Nigeria thing that's grown into other countries as well. We're getting some answers there, and now I feel like this whole thiamine thing is just blossoming. When in 20 years we might know all the well, we won't know all the answers, but we might have some more steps there. So I don't understand it either. So you live. Your name is Love. What a nice name. Hi, Madison. Hi. Um, you live here, but you used to live in Cambodia. No. Um, so I we left Congo in 1991 um, through an evacuation thing. God surprised us and told us to stay in the state. She asked about where I live. Um, so we left Congo then, settled in the states. So we've been in the states since. 1991, and I make trips other places and get involved in other people's research and do things. So I've just visited Cambodia, visited Nigeria a bunch, visited Bangladesh a few times, visited a few other places. And it's that network, teamwork, collaborative kind of stuff going. Does that answer what you're thinking? Yeah. Okay. So is most research funded now by grants? Some people get lots of money to do big research projects. Uh, my research that I've been involved with has been more cheap, just do it kinds of things with a little bit of funding. The one group that turned me down the first time, so I had to get a puppy, uh, that group funded two things for a total of $300,000 for a couple parts of the Nigeria business. Um, the rest of what I've been involved with is either collaborating with somebody else with money um, or just little bits, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 here and there from little grant things from little groups. Um, so this is not like the million-dollar Gates Foundation big stuff that I've been involved with. Lots of research is the big stuff and finding malaria vaccines that cost more. It's 945. Thank you all very much. I'm available. If anybody wants downloads or other information, let me know.